Guys, as you know, GoHunt.com Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast. I want to talk a little bit about their unit profiles. Mapping and satellite imagery. Get a bird's eye view of your hunting terrain on detailed unit maps with clearly identified boundary lines and marked area services. One of the cool things is if you draw a unit, let's say in Nevada or Arizona or one of the western states and you've never been there before, on the GoHunt.com Insider, well, all you have to do is pull up the map, then you pull up the specific unit that you've drawn, and then there's a cool feature where you can just click on a button and it will tell you the nearest gas stations, the nearest restaurants, uh, the nearest automotive stores, the nearest archery supply places. Uh, you can get all of the information right there by clicking on the map. Species and season-specific information. Learn about each species in the unit and gain valuable insight into animal genetics as well as season-specific behavior details. Another great feature that I really like is the weather and geography. View the entire weather history of a unit, precipitation and temperature, plus moon phases. See how much of the unit is private land, your camping and lodging options, and what type of terrain and vegetation to expect. That is just some of the things that you get under the unit profiles. Guys, I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being the sponsor of this podcast. If you use the J. Scott promo code when you sign up for GoHunt.com Insider, you get a $50 Kuyu gift card. They, After you sign up, they will electronically email you a gift card that you can use at Kuyu. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to talk elk hunting and we've got our friend Craig Steele of Exclusive Pursuit Outfitters with us. And we're going to talk about tactics for elk hunting and uh, ways that uh, have made us successful in the past and uh, little tricks of the trade that we use each day when we're elk hunting. And so I hope you guys uh, get some enjoyment out of this and hope, hopefully you'll learn something and I just want to thank all you guys for your support of this podcast and thank our friend Craig Steele here. Craig, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Jay? Good. I look forward to talking to you about elk hunting. Uh, you getting excited for this upcoming season? Oh, uh, yeah. It's it's uh, it's going to be a good one in Arizona and um, at least for antler growth. So it's, it's one we haven't seen in a while as far as the caliber antler growth we're going to see. So I'm pumped. Anytime... You get in Arizona, you get a hunt in Arizona, or you get a guide here, or whatever, and and you get an opportunity to see bulls maxed out and really hit their peak for their age and genetics. It's and and also a lot of the seasons, a lot of rutting activity. Hopefully, will be um, more active than they've been in the last couple of years. So I'm pumped. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping that the rut. I hope I hope we have a good monsoon, which I'm pretty sure we will. And I hope the rut just fires and, you know, there's nothing like in my mind getting to see bulls rut in Arizona. And, um, you know, of course, having the antlers at maximum capacity is, is a bonus because, you know, the 330 bulls, you know, might be 345, 350. And, you know, some of those 350 bulls may push, you know, 360, 370. And, um, you know, granted, there'll be some high end bulls that, you know, just freaks of nature, but I love it when just the, you know, the, the, the general bulls, you know, the everyday bulls that you see are, are good, solid bulls with, you know, good back ends and, you know, s solid um, racks. I mean, there's nothing like chasing, you know, big rack bulls and bugling and carrying on. It's awesome. Yes. No, no, man. It, it makes a huge difference in, as far as, uh, you know, 
um, whatever your benchmarks are for your trophy caliber bull, it makes a huge difference when you get on a good year versus a, a real dry year. I know a lot of, there may be, it seems like now with the way the web is that a lot of guys are starting to pick that up. And I know a lot of us that hunted for years and years, um, and even guys before us probably uh, knew about that, but you didn't have the ability to learn about antler growth. And, you know, I think a lot of that came from the whitetail world too, is, is once the outdoor television network came on as far as learning how nutrition affects the animals. Yeah, for sure. Well, I hope, uh, uh, I hope you're going to be in unit 10. I'm going to be in unit nine. Um, how do you think the difference between nine and 10 this year will be? Uh, or do you think they'll be very similar with the conditions that we have? Man, I, th- I think they'll be pretty close. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, I think in unit 10, you know, I worry about a little bit too many permits that the, uh, as far as quality wise, top end bulls. Um, as far as the age class there, um, but I, I think it'll be pretty close. I, you know, the elk in Unit 9 seem to be a little bit more dense versus Unit 10 where they're spread out and pocketed up and, you know, um, a little I think I think it's, I don't want to say it's more scouting intensive in 10 because there's advantages to 10 as well, but um, I, I th- it just seems like 9's more, the elk are closer. I don't know, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, Unit 10, uh, as much as I've been in there, you know, it's fu- it's really fun because there's so many knobs and little glassing points and mountains to look off of, and you literally can go up on a point and, you know, look 360 degrees and find elk, whereas Unit 9 is a little more flat. There's a few glassing hills, but not many. Some of the glassing hills, you're so far away from the elk that, it, you know, it's a little bit difficult. Um but, you know, Unit 9 has the pine trees and, and, and has a lot of that uh, more typical elk uh, habitat where, um, you know, Unit 10 is primarily pinion juniper. And, and um, if you haven't hunted the junies, it's, it's, it's a little bit different experience. Um, I know from being out there on the Diamond A, you know, Unit 10, the roads don't seem to be as good. And if you get off the beaten path and you get you know, some of these big rain showers and such, uh, it can be very, very sticky where it seems like unit nine for the most part, um, the roads are fairly good and, and, um, uh, you know, so they're, they're two different units, but I think this year is going to be good. I think the, the reason that unit nine, you know, probably is a better hunt is because it has, you know, a hundred less tags, you know, a hundred versus 200. So it'll be interesting to see how this year shakes out. Um, uh, what I want to talk to you today about and have you um, give your two cents is I want to talk about tactics for better elk hunting. And years ago, I had written an article for, um, at the time, was Western Hunter Magazine before they branched out and, and, and created Elk Hunter Magazine. Uh, but I wanted to talk about some tactics, and we're probably only going to get into a handful of these tactics today, and we'll we'll have to cover uh, some more of them on another podcast. Um, but you know, everybody that's an elk hunter, uh, you know, everybody starts at some point and, and learns at some point, not everybody starts out and knows everything there is about elk hunting. And I would even say that, you know, there's not a day that goes by out in the field elk hunting that I don't learn something. So, um, you know, these are some tactics 
and ideas for better elk hunting that I've put together, and I just want to go through them, and we'll bounce back and forth and get your thoughts, and, and we'll talk a, a little bit about each tactic. Okay, man. Sounds good. I know you got a so, bunch of bunch of knowledge here to spread around. So, Well, I, I, I've done it a long time. I don't know about a bunch of knowledge, but I'm just going to tell you um, some tactics that work for me and um, some thoughts that, that I think about every time when I'm elk hunting. So um, I'm just going to read a little bit of my notes from the article, and then we'll discuss them. So, All right, man. Num- number one, the wind is the single most important factor in elk hunting. By far, the wind is the single most important factor to keep in mind while elk hunting. An elk's nose rarely ever lies to him or her. You must approach from downwind always. I like to plan my approach around the thermals. When you hear bulls bugling, you may have to swing one way or another to play the wind right and keep it in your face at all times. I carry a squeezable wind checker with me at all times during the stock. As I'm approaching the elk, I'm constantly checking the wind. I go through at least six squeezable bottles a season. I think one of the most important things here, Craig, is is people need to understand that when I'm elk hunting, when I talk about carrying a squeezable bottle with me, I literally, as I'm stalking, I have my, my chest, my bino chest pack, I have a, a squeezable bottle and it's always in my left hand and I'm popping my binos in and out, I'm glassing for bulls, I'm, but I'm always squeezing the wind. I don't know about you, um, but it's very, very important at all times to know what the wind is doing. It's, it's. Uh, I, I will add. I don't think you can ever fool their actual nose. And those little squeeze bottles, I am frantic. You probably, for me personally, I probably burn ten or fifteen of those up. You know, and I refill them with baby powder, usually with flour is actually what I like to refill them with. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 critical. I mean, and, and, and that's the, the biggest nemesis. And the closer you get, the, the, you know, the worse off it gets. It's always nice when you have a little bit of a general wind. So you got a little bit of a, a, a normal direction. I know in some, you know, some of these units in Arizona, um, I, I think in some of that higher elevation stuff in some of these other states or, you know, some of the steeper countries, those thermals play in and are a lot easier to predict. But when you get yeah. in this flat stuff like Arizona has, it's very hard unless you have a general wind and it can really mess you up. Um, I mean, it's just it's so critical. It is. I mean, when you get close, I mean, it's frantically check the wind check the wind check the wind and there's there's not a really once you get past a certain distance 100 yards or something i mean they can smell you from a lot further than that but once you get in there tight it's really hard to back out without them detecting you you know if the wind switches yeah and absolutely and one thing i will say is a lot of times if there's a bull that i want to go after that i want to kill and the wind isn't right, I will just sit and continue to watch the bull, and I won't even make my approach because the last thing I want him to do is wind me. Yeah. And I'll take that a step further. Sometimes during the stock when I'm dogging a bull or dogging a herd and trying to get in there and trying to loop around and get the wind right, um, as I'm coming around, sometimes I'm less aggressive, sometimes I'm more aggressive, and you have to watch the way those, that wind can constantly be changing and there are some times, let's, let's talk about if, if there's elk, say, dead out in front of you and the wind's blowing dead at them, 
there are times when I will ride the wind around and continue to ride, let's say, around to the left or around to the right and kind of parallel those elk until the la last second and then I cut in for my shot. Um, but it's a true, uh, you know, it's just trial and error of trying to figure out uh, how much you can get away with. It is. It's, it's, I mean, it'd be based on experience. I call that like a little button hook where, where you where you essentially, the wind's blowing. I did that quite a bit on my last elk hunt and use it quite a bit when I'm taking hunters is, is if you got a bad wind and the strong steady wind, you don't automatically have to panic. What you do is you, depending on the topography and how it lays out is you get to the side of those elk and let the, that, that general wind take your wind essentially like a, like a highway to the, off center from those elk so they don't smell you now if they where you got to be cautious is like you're saying is is if you if you shadow them or if you dog them you got to make sure that your your uh, wind doesn't collide with the elk um your scent so it's it's definitely a tactic i think it's one like you said it just takes time and experience and i know there's a lot of a lot of hunters out there that that think you're crazy when you tell them stuff like that that haven't ever done it because everything they read is get the wind in your face, which is, is true. You want the wind in your face, but when you're bow hunting um, or any sort of hunt, sometimes you don't have a choice. And so you, you just wait until the very end and play the wind, so to speak, instead of, you know, just constantly having it at your back or at your face. Yeah. And, and let's also keep in mind that the elk constantly always have the elk or excuse me, have the wind in their face. Mm -hmm. And so as you're trying to play the wind, they're playing yes. the wind too. So it, it becomes a little bit tricky. And, you know, let's say that you get to a scenario where the bulls are bugling in the dark and you're there, it's, you know, 3.34 in the morning, you're trying to figure out, you know, where your bull is at or where your elk that you want to chase. And you've got kind of a predominant wind. Most all the time, they're going to leave that meadow or leave that water hole or leave that congregation area. They're going to leave with the wind yep. in their face. So as you're trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do when it gets light? You might need to be thinking about what is the wind doing? What did the, you know, weather.com or, or weather bug or whatever, what did they say, you know, I usually look in the mornings or in the evenings what the wind is going to be doing, predicted wind is going to be doing, the predominant wind, mm -hmm. and try and factor, okay, these elk are probably going to go southwest, you know, because of the wind, and everything that I do in my approach is is made around the wind. Yeah, no, it is critical. I am, uh, you know me, and, and I know you as well, uh, I like to go directly, like if I'm hunting out of, uh, unit, any of northern Arizona, I'm getting my weather information from the Belmont office um, at NOAA, um, National Weather Service Flagstaff. It's actually out of Belmont. I'm looking at their forecast discussions, which are every four hours. They're kind of technical, but I've been reading them for 10 or 12 years now. And I'm also they also have a graphical prediction wind chart. And I know when I was working fire that uh, going through uh, – a, a class with the meteorologist is they don't like to predict the wind because it's so unpredictable. And what their, what their thought is, is in, in any wildland 
fire guys will tell you is, I mean, they'll cuss and scream at the, uh, about the meteorologist because the wind is so unpredictable. The sooner to the time that, you know, if it's, they're, they're going to tell you, I can get you an accurate forecast within one minute for the wind versus, you know, 30 minutes prior, they may have told you a completely different thing. They don't even predict the wind outside of two days unless there's a storm front coming in or something like that. But if you look at all the weather reports, if you're getting a wind direction, it's just a generic, it's generic, it's made up outside of two days. If you go to the National Weather Service and you look at their weather uh, forecast, they will not give you a wind speed or wind direction outside of two days. Uh, so, Craig, uh, tell me, what is the resource that you use, again, to check that? Because okay. I know we've got to have a lot of listeners that are hunting. You just, you I, know, I, I, seven, eight, ten. Yes. Nine. It's, uh, I mean, if you just type in National Weather Service um, and then go to whatever, you know, they have regions. Right now I'm looking at the Western Region Headquarters, and it's, it's uh, wrh.noaa.gov. And then you can click on wherever you're going to be hunting. And, you know, every one of them has a forecast office um, in, in that area. And you can go to forecast discussion or, you know, you can go to the below. Like right now I'm on the Belmont or the Flagstaff, Arizona one. And there's a little thing called graphical forecast. And you can click on local and then you can pull up um, – what their predictions are for the wind um, in that area. Um, and then like on the graphical forecast, they won't give you gust outside of two days. They'll give you a direction. But I use those a lot for predator hunts um, because the wind's critical there um, as well. And uh, when I was doing a few, uh, anytime I do a, a contest or anything like that or take out hunters or I'm going out for myself, I'm always on there. So I, th I think that's some of the most accurate weather information you can find is through NOAA or the National Weather Service. So, And, and I assume with that that our listeners that are listening in other states uh, can go on that and find the, 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 the wind patterns for uh, the wind predictions for their state as well in the area that they're hunting. Yeah, and then you can also call in. They have forecast numbers. Um, you can call in for that area and you can get a forecast over the phone. Um, or, or you can, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a, a weather service radio or some of the, the two way cheaper model, um, like, uh, radios, um, they'll have a, a generic weather channel, um, that you can listen to. But I really like looking, if I can have, if I have data service, I like looking at their, at their models and, and I'm, I'm a nut when it comes to that, sometimes a little overboard, so. And, and, you know, speaking about the wind, let's talk a little bit about scent control. Um, these are huge topics that we could spend days on. Um, my theory with scent control is I try and do everything that I can to prevent as much human odor as I can. I try not to wear my camos in a restaurant. Uh, you know, if you, you go hunt, chase some bulls, and then, you you know, if you're in an area, and sometimes in Arizona, there's little cafes and stuff where you can go in and get some bacon and eggs at, mm -hmm. you know, 1030 in the morning. I try not to wear my camos in places like that. If I'm in my camp trailer, uh, I try not to um, cook or um, have any, you know, grease or any kind of um, unnatural uh, smells. I typically keep my camo clothes in a 
up uh, a uh, action packer outside of my tent or outside of my trailer. Um, you know, I go as far as taking, you know, pinion juniper branches and, and um, pine branches and putting them in there with my clothing. Now, there's nothing you can do in my mind to mitigate well, you can mitigate your smell, but there's nothing you can do to eliminate it. There's also, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, scent uh, neutralizing sprays and stuff, and those are all great, and I use them. Uh, but you have to keep in mind there is nothing you can do that will fool an elk's nose. There are things you can do to help, mm-hmm. and there are things you can do to, to um, you know, make it a little bit better. But the reality is you could probably smoke cigarettes and – do whatever and keep the wind right and and be all right. Um, you know you cannot fool an elk's nose. I, I don't care if you have whatever scent lock system you have. If if they're downwind of you, uh, they're gonna smell yeah, you. Yeah, I I would agree there. You know, all I do basically is I try to shower. Um, I try to wash my clothes in 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 some sort of scent free stuff. I use unscented deodorant. Um, I, I use unscented deodorant as well, and I try and shower morning and night, uh, morning before I go out and, and the evenings um, uh, in the afternoon before I go out for the afternoon hunt. I try and shower as much as I can as well. Yeah, you know, if you can do it, I mean, obviously, you know, these guys doing the backcountry stuff like that, you know, that's that's not an option. But if you can do it, then do it. You know, I, I, I know I, I am a big, pretty big guy, and I sweat a ton. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sweat as soon as I step outside the truck. Um, and it's, it's, it is, I believe it's impossible to, to mask your sin. I don't think there is such a thing. I think there is such a thing as like you're saying, as far as you might be able to diminish it a little bit. He may think you're a little bit farther away because he doesn't get the amount of scent that he's used to. Um, but as far as completely masking, I think that's, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, we could talk about, uh, wind for a long time. Let's move on to number two. Um, when you're elk scouting, look for areas that are greener than others. And specifically I'm talking in Arizona, New Mexico, probably Nevada, uh, maybe where there's more arid elk climates. Um, this one pertain is, uh, very important. Um, uh, in Arizona where most of my elk hunting takes place, we have monsoons. Uh, these, these thunderstorms can randomly hit often raining three inches in one spot, two miles away, may not even get a single drop. This will create a difference in good grass and feed or no feed. Elk tend to follow summer rains. It's important to monitor where it rains in the summer and make note of it. Uh, oftentimes come September where the most rain has fallen is where the best bulls will be. You know, that is something that I can tell you from hunting in Unit 9 and Unit 10 uh, quite a bit, uh, which are very arid units, that if you can figure out where the best rains have been, usually the most elk, the cows are there and the bulls show up. Now, in a year like this where it's green all over, I think you know those elk get very, very spread out. But I also think it's important um, over the next couple of months to monitor not only, you know, in person, but watch the rain charts and watch these maps and see where some of these big downpours have hit because those elk will migrate uh, to the freshest, you know, greenest feed, most supple feed out there. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. Early, you know, looking for those green up spots 
especially on a spotty year. Um, that's that. I mean, they need they need feed. I mean, it's it, they're they're a horse that that jumps fences and that you know that doesn't get fed, you know, by by somebody. So they have to go find that and search out that feed to survive and and to get healthy and and that's where they're going to be. And and I believe too. Um, and I don't have any actual factual proof to this, but where it's greener, I think that's where your cows are going to cycle quicker. Um, where you have greener feed where they can put on that weight and, and, and stay healthy through, uh, nursing those calves. Um, I think you're going to see an increase, uh, rut in those areas, um, depending upon a bunch of different other dynamics, but I, I really truly believe that. And that, I mean, that's 100% true. Everything you said. Yeah. And, and like this year, like we've talked how we've had, you know, really good spring rains, you know, my friend Monty there in unit nine and Tuzion saying it's the greenest he's ever seen it in 12 years that he's lived there. You know, you've got green grass all over, but guys, you know, if, if this rain shuts off, uh, let's say we have a very, very weak monsoon. Um, and, but you know, we're going to get a shower too, but if this, this rain shuts up, uh, you, you know, the feed that's there now, it'll burn up. And so if, if, you know, the, if the monsoon shuts off and we only get one or two storms, you're going to need to know where those two storms have hit. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I've just seen it year after year after year where, where it's green, that's where you'll find the most elk, where you find the most elk. Speaking of cows, you know, a lot of times that's where your biggest bulls are going to show up. Yep. Um, number three, better to be early than late. Uh, unfortunately, the rut doesn't last all year long, so it's important to make the most of every single day in the elk woods. Make sure that you're firing out of the sack early every morning. The worst feeling in the world for me is showing up to your spot to find someone else just beat you there. I like to leave in plenty of time in case of a flat tire or other setbacks that you may have. If you get to your spot way before it's light, you can listen to bulls and figure out which direction they are headed. Make sure to stay way back away from the elk so you don't disturb them. Also, if, you, uh, if you're extra early, you can always go to plan B if necessary. Anybody that hunts with me for elk or for turkey or for sheep or for anything for that matter is I always like to be early. I hate being late. Uh, it absolutely drives me crazy. And I'm one of these guys that, you know, uh, goes to the football game and waits for them to open the stadium up. I mean, I'm just, I, I, I hate being late. And I found that, uh, you know, you always have to be adaptable while elk hunting. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, your plan for the morning may change. And if you're running late, uh, you're going to be a scatterbrained. Your clients that you're taking elk hunting are going to be a, a, a scatterbrained and, you know, not focused. Whereas if you're early, you can get there and be totally prepared. And if, you know, some somebody comes driving in to the spot or something, you have the option to move because it's still early. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Peter panic when I'm late on the elk. And I, I think, you know, our, any of the hunts that I do, but specifically the elk hunt, it, it, it's like no sleep time is one thing I heard with Mike Park. You guys talking about it the other day. You can sleep later. You have a tag. It took you a long time to draw that tag. It's time to hunt. It's not time to worry about your beauty sleep. It's not time to, you know, I think that's what separates a lot of guys is that they just don't. And, and that's okay. If you just want to go out and have a good time and have a great experience, I get it, but don't fault the guy that's over there not sleeping. 
a guy that's putting in the work and he's putting in the effort because that guy nine times out of ten is going to be the one that's successful and the one that's that's prepared and he takes it because you need every single moment and opportunity that you can to get an arrow in that big bull um and so it's it's just so critical yeah and the other thing i might add to that is um you know when i'm talking specifically about elk hunting um my personal tag or if i'm guiding someone uh people that know me they already know this, but I'll throw this out there. If you're serious about wanting to kill a big bull and you're serious about, you know, wanting to, to, to have the best elk hunt that you can possibly have, in my opinion, the worst thing you can do is have a lot of people at camp mm-hmm. and have people that come up and join you for the weekend. They've slept for the last five nights in a row from, you know, 10 o'clock to to 7 a.m. and gotten a lot of sleep and they come up on you know Friday night and they're there for Saturday and Sunday they leave Sunday afternoon well they like to stay up on Friday night and sit by build a campfire Mm -hmm. and drink you know drink some beers or whatever to me that's a total detriment to what I'm trying to accomplish and uh, in this topic of being early, if, if you stay up late and, you, you know, yes, it's fun to sit around and, you know, talk with your buddies and all of that. But I, I become pretty uh, – I get in a routine and I stick to it. And I don't like it when uh, people come that have been, you know, fresh and they want to stay up till 11 o'clock at night you know, at my elk camp and, and keep everybody up because we've got to get up at 3 a.m. the next morning. Another, another thing that that's completely true, and that's what guys have to decide what they want to do. You know what right. I mean? And, and you have the choice. Decide what you want to do because, you know, I, I'm the same way. I, I would rather hunt with, you know, myself or with two or three other people that are dedicated in camp versus, you know, I don't mind if my family comes up or something like that, but just it, when I'm in that mode, I'm in that, that hunting mode. I know, you know, there, there's certain times if it's kid hunt and all that, but if we're talking about serious sure. elk hunting, we're focused and we want to get the job done and we want to achieve our goal. That's what it takes. Um, yeah. and I know one thing about another thing about being earlier, at least for me, um, there's times when the activity in the morning is very minimal or in the afternoon vice versa i like to be out early so i have as many opportunities depending on where i'm going if i got a big bull and i kind of know where he's at if i don't know where he's at those elk move at night so whether i'm searching from a foot or searching from the truck to try to hear those elk there's been times when i've gone an hour past daylight and i still haven't even left the truck because i haven't heard anything and I can't figure out where they're at. And sometimes, you know, I'll use the truck to get me to point A to point B. And then I still might have to walk an hour and they might not start bugling till, you know, after daylight. But the point being is if I wasn't there all morning listening and in hearing everything that I can hear, I, I wouldn't know where to start. So that that's, I, that's critical for me is trying to figure out mentally where do I start? What angle do I take after this bull? You know, he wasn't over here. They, I've listened six or seven, ten spots 
I haven't heard a peep or over here they're ripping five miles away down here they're not ripping you know there's a lot that goes into that and being early is is what it takes to to hear all that all right number four a mature bull doesn't always have a big sounding bugle boy this is something we're we're gonna have fun talking about um i've seen some bulls that sounded big that were just raghorns usually if a bull has a lot of volume he is going to be mature but don't mistake volume for high pitch we all have seen high-pitch bulls that are small. Volume and deep guttural sounds are usually indicators of a mature bull. It's best to always investigate each bugle so that you won't be fooled by a big bull that doesn't sound great. I also listen for the glunking sound when I'm elk hunting. I have found that big bulls typically will glunk more at their cows because they do not want to let every bull around know their position. You know, I, I think more times than not, big mature bulls sound like a big mature bull. And I think, you know, like I said, volume, when you hear a lot of volume, that's usually a mature bull. Um, I have been fooled though by bulls that sound, you know, really good. We all have, you know, real hoarse sounding and you go up there and it's a five point that's mm -hmm. bugling his guts out. I, I would agree. Um, I think it's something that takes a lot of time and experience. I think it's something that will never be exact. Will never. I mean, it's like you're listening to human voices. You know, there's there's guys that you know you think are are ten foot tall and bulletproof, and they're you know five foot two. And there's guys you think you know are five foot two, and they're they're six foot five and just bruisers. You know, I mean, look at Mike Tyson. You know, so um, it's one of those things. I uh, one that you know that really sticks out to me was a bull me and my wife hunted when my wife drew her first elk tag in 2005 and we called this bull squeak. And I can remember vividly and, and, and the guy that was hunting was one of my good friends, Dan Butler, and he, he's a pretty darn experienced hunter and he's a very, very capable bow hunter. And I can remember thinking, um, when we got on this bull this morning, he had a different sound. Um, he, he, basically didn't finish his bugle um and he you know whether it be laryngitis or whatever it was he didn't finish his bugle it ended on a high-pitched squeak every time and he didn't have the huge volume i remember though when i seen him or when i seen the group of cows a lot of times another thing too is bulls will cow call and when they have cows and they'll make, like you said, they'll make a lot of what I call big bull sounds, whether they're grunting or glunking. And that's an indicator there that a lot of people don't pick up on if they don't really in tune, you know, get their ear in tune with what's going on and haven't really done it. It's all those little big bull sounds. Sometimes it's just, sometimes they'll sound like a Brahma bull, just, you know, and they, whether they're doing that to elude hunters, I think more, more times than not, they're doing that to elude other bulls. Um, and this bull squeak, I can remember seeing all the cows in the trees and I, he walked by, but I never did see him. And, and my buddy Dan's like, I, I, are you going to really go after him? He didn't sound that big. And when I got, and I'm like, yes, I seen he had a bunch of cows. He had a big body. We're going after him. And we, we come up over the ridge and I seen him go up over the hill. And I can remember saying, you know, because Dan thought he was a little bull, and this is nothing against Dan because I've done the same thing, but I can remember vividly saying, that's a little bull my butt because this <laughs> bull was like, you know, the bull. I mean, he was like 390, 
Um, they had a big inline on one side. He was just a giant old bull. And so is that the one in the water tank? That's the one in the water tank. That was squeak. Good. Um, That's a big bull. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's, it's, there's a lot of that that takes experience. Um, I, I will say a lot of the younger bulls to me anyway, to my ear, and I'm a little bit deaf anyway, but to me, they almost sound like a teenage boy. You know, they kind of, they kind of have, uh, they don't hit all the notes clean, but then it, it's almost like they sound like, if you hear a lot of elk bugle, they sound like, they just sound immature. You know, they just, there's something about it that sounds immature. I, I don't know if I can explain it. And, but then there's times when there's bulls that just sound totally funky. And sometimes those funky sounding bulls or those bulls that only make the big bull noises are the ones that I find to be the biggest, but it's not. It's not all the time. I mean, I've heard big giant bulls that just are super pretty, have super pretty bugles. You know, they're all over the map. So, well, you know, something that while you were talking that I thought of is, you know, it, it leads me to another point of if you're specifically trying to kill one bull, you need to learn his bugle Absolutely. and you need to learn what sounds he makes when he makes those sounds. And an example that I have is back in 2004, uh, Dar Colburn, my, my guiding partner uh, and hunting buddy, uh, was guiding in Unit 3C. And um, we actually both had early rifle uh, elk hunters for for. Uh, the upcoming hunt, and Dar was scouting uh, during that the, the 3C hunt, and he found a big giant bull. Mm-hmm. And what he did uh, from then until when the season started is he would go in, keep his distance, try and put his eyes on the bull, and he would listen to the bull's bugle. Yep. And he, what he was doing was he was learning that bull's behavior. He was learning his patterns, but more importantly, he was learning his bugle. Yep. And and I've heard Randy Omer talk about it before. And you know, listen to their voice and get to know their voice. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been doing that over the years. But Dar specifically learned this bull's bugle, and he learned how the bull chuckled, and he learned how the bull acted. So the night before the season, he, he listened for the bull and he put the bull, you know, quote unquote to bed. But what was important the next morning, he was in there way early in the dark and those elk had moved a little bit and he heard the bull bugle and he knew it was that bull. So, you know, if you're just talking elk hunting in general and you're just out there trying to harvest the bull, that's one thing. But a tip, if you're specifically trying to kill a specific bull, learn his voice. Absolutely. So Dar goes, Dar goes in that morning early in the dark. He hears a bunch of bulls bugling and he tells his client, he says, that's the bull. That's the bull we need to stay on. That's his voice. Yep. And the client, sure enough, the client or, or hunter or whatever looks at you with a crazy look and you're like, I know it. You know. Yeah, and 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 you know the reality is, yeah, to the to someone that hasn't spent a lot of time around elk, he's probably thinking you're crazy. How can you pick that out? But all, most all the time, specifically big, old, mature bulls do things yep. 
they have a ritual and they do it the same way every time. And you can hear how they uh, bugle at other bulls. You can hear how they uh, bugle within the herd. And you can, you know, there's little things that he always ends in a chuckle or he always starts with a chuckle or, you know, different little things that those bulls do and you can really hone in. So Dar goes in there uh, that morning, you know, listens to the bull, waits till it gets light, moves into position, you know, just keeps staying with the bull, gets light. They kill him. He's 423 inches. He's this, you know, giant bull. And that is specifically due to the fact that Dar knew that bull's bugle. Was that the bull in the burn? Yeah, the bull in the burn, uh, you know, big, big giant bull. Um, 423 or 425 or something like that. Big, you know, nice big bull. And you know, he would have never gotten, or I, I shouldn't say he would have never gotten the bull, but he would not have had as good a chance okay, to get the bull. Okay, let's put that in didn't. perspective. Nice big bull. That's a freaking giant for all you people listening. That's a giant. Well, <laughs> I mean, it definitely is a giant. Yeah, it's a giant bull. Um. And, you know, the credit goes to Dar for knowing that bull's voice. And I just uh, think that's important. Uh, and, and 350 bulls or 300 bulls, you know, can can have the same characteristics. You may pick a bull because he's got a drop tine or, yeah. you know, he's a six point. You know, you may be hunting in an area where a six point is a trophy and you listen to that bull bugle uh you know, then you can go in and there's, you know, four or five bulls bugling. You know exactly which bull it is. And, and let's take this a step further. In my experience, if there's a bull specifically that you know you want to kill and you hear other bulls bugling between you and him, one would say, you know, what do you do? What I do is I try and loop around or I try not to call or mess with the bulls that are in between me and the bull that I want to kill because all they're going to do is come into me, mm-hmm. you know, you, you cow call or bugle or whatever, you, however you call, they, they come into you and then that bull that you want to kill is that much further on the other side of the, you know, the meadow going the other way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to make a big loop around, but knowing your bull's voice is huge. No, it's, it saves you time, and that's what the whole deal is, is finding if you can, if you're hunting one specific bull, is you want to try to get as many opportunities as you can at him, you know, and so if, if you can identify his voice, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just like him advertising where he's at every day, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you know. Some big bulls bugle a lot. Some big bulls don't bugle a lot. Yeah. Going back to the glunking thing, uh, I have heard satellite bulls glunk. I've heard young bulls glunk. But more times than not, uh, when you're close to the herd and a bull is tending his cows, they don't want to bugle because they don't want every bull around knowing. So people ask, well, why do they glunk? Well, I think one of the reasons they glunk specifically is it's a herding, it's a tending sound that they can communicate with their cows like, hey, get over here. Hey, get in line. Hey, you know, quit, quit, go, you know, wandering off. Stay over here. Yeah. Without, without broadcasting to every bull within a mile range of, you know, where he's at. Yeah. Because a lot of times those big bulls have a ton of cows and they don't want to be pestered by every satellite bull in town. No, no, no. Exactly. It's. I mean, it's. 
it's just like with coyotes they don't always want to give up their location because you know there's always territory there and his his objective that big old bull's objective is try to you know breed as many cows cover as many cows as he can and he's real selfish he doesn't you know he doesn't want to and he doesn't want to burn any energy either you know yeah yeah so right on uh Number five, a big track usually means an old bull. This seems obvious. Very rarely will a big antler bull have a small track. Practice following bulls and looking at their tracks until you can distinguish a big track from a small track. A huge track might be an old mature bull that is a palmated and going downhill, or it might just be a 10-year-old bull every trophy hunter is looking for. In arid units like Arizona, you can literally follow bulls by their track. You can check water holes and look for big tracks. Big tracks usually means big bulls. I, I would agree, and it's almost, you know, it's one of those things in hunting. It's all, it's You never say never, and you never say always, but it's a great indicator, and some of the biggest bulls in the world have the biggest feet in the world. We have some huge-bodied elk, especially in central Arizona, um, like, you know, 11, 1,200-pound big old bulls um i know bulls in some of the block units that get killed or multi-units that are just ginormous bodies i mean they're just absolutely dinosaurs um and you know i know they did studies in the white mountain apache reservation where bulls get old you know all the way i think they had a 400 inch bull that was like 17 or something like that and most bulls do have big feet i will say one thing with regarding that i had a story with my wife a couple of years ago, we were late elk hunting. It was toward the end of the hunt. We normally don't track any animals up with her because she's just not quick with the rifle. And I set out on these two tracks, and they were kind of smaller tracks. And I was expecting just to track up a couple five points, so I was really kind of lollygagging. And I ended up tracking one of the biggest bulls of my life. Now, he lived in limestone-type country, so... And I don't know if genetically if he just had a smaller foot or if he'd wore his foot down, but that was just an exception to the rule. But I would agree with you wholeheartedly that a big old footed bull or big old bull generally has a big old foot. Yeah, and and you know I'm no great tracker by any means, um, but I do enjoy getting on tracks and following them. And I, I I've done this with deer, I've done this with elk uh, in country where it's conducive. Um, you know, and start out, start out in some of the sandy country, start out where, you know, anybody could follow a track, but it, it's kind of fun to get on a set of tracks and just follow them because they, they interact with other elk, they mix tracks. And, and, you know, if you get to where you can, uh, you know, walk at a good, you know, just a regular pace and follow tracks, um, it, it, it's a pretty cool way to learn. Uh, what those elk are doing it also comes in very handy tracking uh, when let's say you shoot an animal and you don't have a big bucket blood trail and if you've never followed tracks before um, you're going to be a lot further behind than someone that you know routinely for fun just gets on a set of tracks and goes and follows them up now I wouldn't say go follow up tracks during the season unless that's your style of hunting. But, you know, in the summer and stuff, you can go out, just get on a set of tracks and follow them for fun. And, and it'll be amazing how much better you get at tracking if you, you know, just every once in a while, just go track whatever tracks you're on, you're on and follow them till you run into the animal. I think tracking, 
you know, not necessarily like you think of tracking a big old mule deer buck up and, and jump shooting him or whatnot, but I think tracking in general and reading sign is one of those hunting skills that's not cool anymore. It's not really talked about. It's it's not really, um, uh, you know, especially I think a lot of it's because of trail cameras. You know, guys just, if they see a lot of tracks, they just throw up a trail camera and they don't really you know, have the intentions of reading that stuff. I know for me personally, you know, it depends, everything depends, depends, depends on, you know, where you're hunting, where animals, you know, are you hunting a unit that has very little elk? Are you hunting a specific elk? Has he been bumped? Have you not been able to find him for a few days? You know, so, you know, is he in open country where he, you know, um, he could only be in certain areas and, and being able to cut that track and know that it's the right bull um, by his track, does he have a short toe? Um, does he, you know, uh, an offset gait? Um, how many cows does he have with him? Um, I, th- I think those are all huge little things that don't get talked about a lot. That I know, like my dad was a good tracker. My my grandfather was a great tracker. I know my partners five times the tracker I am, um, and it's just one of those things that. I, th- I think a lot of younger demographic are losing and in, in my opinion. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, well, Craig, those are five tips there. Um, tactics on elk hunting. I uh, want to thank you for being on with us today and uh, look forward to going over more of these tactics and um, yeah, looking forward to this September for sure. I can't wait to, to uh, hear those bulls bugling. All right, but I got a, I got a little, J.O. softball party I got to go to, so. Sounds good. Well, you have have a good day, and I'll catch you later. All right, bud. Talk to you later. Okay. Guys, I want to tell you about one of the sponsors of this podcast. DeadeyeOutfitters.com is a lifestyle hunting apparel company for hunters by hunters. Check out episode 45 of this podcast with one of the owners, and you'll see what I mean. Deadeye Outfitters makes quality t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats designed with hunters in mind. Deadeye Outfitters has the only license for creating Boone and Crockett apparel. Use the J. Scott promo code and receive a 10% discount on all purchases at DeadeyeOutfitters.com. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card when signing up for the GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster. Hunt more, go to gohunt.com forward slash insider and join today.